You're listening to audio from Christ Community Church in Fishers, Indiana. Our mission is to develop disciples of Jesus to impact the world. If you'd like to find out more information about us or donate to our ministry, please visit us at our website at cccfishers.org. Thanks for joining us. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. If you want, you can turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. That's where we will be this morning, just continuing on in our series in the book of Acts. We'll be in Acts 18. If you also want to, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians, stick your thumb in there. We'll get to that later in the service, uh, in, in the message as well. But as we turn our hearts and our minds towards God and towards his word, we pray that the spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds. So again, would you pray with me one more time? Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue. I love this part. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius uh, Titius, uh, Justice a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, and keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews are making a complaint about some misdemeanor or uh, serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not judge of such things. So he drove them off. 
Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. If you haven't picked up on it yet, as we've been reading through the book of Acts, Luke has fallen into a pattern, especially from verse, uh, chapters 15 on, has fallen into a pattern of accounting or recounting Paul's travels. He simply says Paul goes into a town, right? Whether it's Thessalonia or Philippi or Lystra or Derb or wherever, Paul goes into the city, goes to the synagogue, and begins to teach those in the synagogue about Jesus. Some in the synagogue believe, others do not. Those who don't believe what Paul is teaching tend to form a mob or drag Paul or some other people before political authorities under charges of sedition or disturbing the peace or whatever it might be. Interestingly, when this happens in Corinth, the proconsul Gallio says, hey, "Listen, I like there's no crime here as far as I can see. All I see happening is some internal religious squabbles between you all. You figure it out." Now, that doesn't mean that Gallio or I don't even know Gallio, that's what I've been saying, right? Gallio, that he is some wise or balanced or just ruler because what happens next is after he rules that the mob drags out Sosthenes who we're told is a synagogue leader and we're not told exactly why they choose him it could be that they chose Sosthenes because they see him as a leader who has failed to be able to make the charges against Paul stick so they get upset or Sosthenes has in fact as a synagogue leader uh, committed to Christ, believes in Christ and that he is the Messiah and therefore they're angry at him and beat him. We don't really know what the reason is. All we know is they drag him out in front of Galileo and they beat him and he does nothing. He doesn't care about this particular person. So, so we don't want to think that he's this just, balanced, wise, uh, sort of libertarian type leader. Not that at all. He just has no interest in what's going on in the synagogues whatsoever. Now, what sets this story out from all of the other stories that follow a similar pattern is what happens right in the middle of the story. Right in the middle, Luke tells us that Paul hears from God. Now, if you have a Bible that has the red letters, these are letters in red. They're words from Jesus to Paul at this particular moment. And what's interesting is, in order to find the last time in Acts in which the words of God or the words of Jesus are recorded, you have to go all the way back to Acts chapter 10, when Peter has the vision of the sheet coming down out of heaven and it's full of all the animals, and he hears the voice of the Lord saying, take and kill and eat. And do not call anything that I have made unclean. The time right before that, for Paul is when Paul is on the road to Damascus and the light blinds him and he hears, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's the last time we are told that Paul hears from God. Which is just really interesting to think about. Here you have the disciples seeking to live into this new thing, this way of following Jesus they're trying to trust the Spirit as they move out into the world. And, and we have it, I think, at least I did, have it in my mind that they're constantly being led by the Spirit, that they're in tune with the Spirit more than us. But, but here, the, 
they don't hear from God all that often. When we stop and we really look at it, I mean, years have passed between Damascus Road and Paul and Corinth. And, and honestly, I take some comfort in that. I take some comfort in the fact that here even Paul isn't on a regular daily basis hearing the word of the Lord speak, at least not in a way that Luke finds, finds significant enough to record for us. So the fact that Luke decides in this moment to write down, hey, God spoke to Paul, means that it is a big deal. It means we ought to pay attention to what God is saying to Paul, because maybe it says something to us. So let's set the scene for just a minute so we understand perhaps maybe why God chose this particular moment to speak. When God so infrequently speaks in such a way that Luke is going to record it, why did Luke record this instance at this particular moment? So think about the context, of, uh, 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 the context on whole of the book of Acts and where we are in it. We'll start with chapter 15. In chapter 15, we have the council in Jerusalem. Remember, the council's purpose was trying to determine how to include the Gentiles into the church. And the major question was, do the Gentiles need to be circumcised? And there's this tension as some say yes, absolutely, and others say no. And this is not a small debate whatsoever. Think about what circumcision was. Circumcision was a sign of the inclusion of the covenant between God and Israel. If you wanted to be a part of that covenant, if you wanted to be a part of the people of God, then you had to go through circumcision in order to to be identified as one of God's covenant members. This has been practiced for thousands of years. It was a ritual central to the identity of what it meant to to be Jewish. And now there was a group of people within the church saying, yeah, we don't need that anymore. Things don't just change like that, not without some conflict and from some strife. And Paul is the one who is leading the charge on changing it so that the Gentiles can be included as full members of the church without circumcision. And so you just got to re- imagine the tension, the conflict, the stress, the conversations that would occur as you're in the middle of that debate. And Paul weathers it. Then after the Jerusalem Council, Paul and Barnabas get into a serious argument about whether or not uh, uh, John Mark should tre- go with them on the, next ju- on the next part of their missionary journey. And the conflict is so deep-seated between Barnabas and Paul that they decide that they can't go together anymore, and the two separate. And so after this institutional religious conflict, now Paul is dealing with this personal conflict, this personal tension and stress. Then Paul goes to Macedonia and, and, and to Philippi, and there he's thrown in prison after he cast the demon out of the slave girl. Then Paul, after he's escapes from prison, goes to Thessalonica, and there in Thessalonica, a mob is formed against them, and they run out of town. Jason gets rounded up, gets thrown into jail, and then has to post bond and get out. Paul then goes to Berea, preaches there, has some success while he's preaching there, but those who in Thessalonica hear that he's in Berea, so they go over to Berea and run him out of town over there. Then Paul goes to Athens, where he has the big conversations with the people in the Areopagus, but that's a little bit of a respite because he didn't, there wasn't really much of a mob going on there. Now he's in Athens. 
does the, what he always, or not he's in Athens, he's in Corinth. He goes into Corinth, does what he normally does, goes into the synagogue, preaches. Some believe, some don't, and those who don't begin to abuse him, we're told, and he shakes out his clothes at them and says, fine, I'm done. I mean, this is a lot for anyone to deal with. And you can hear the frustration in Paul's voice. And I can't help but wonder if, if all that Paul had been experiencing up to that moment, and then you add that moment on top of it, if it wasn't just the, the straw that broke the camel's back, if it all isn't finally getting to him. Now, Paul's human. It's hard to imagine this Paul's human. I mean, he writes so much of the New Testament. We read about him. greatest missionary churches ever know, started all these churches, right? You can... You can you can kind of put him up on this pedestal, and for some that's good, but he's still ultimately just human. So you have to imagine that he gets frustrated and exasperated. I mean, Jesus, Jesus is fully human, but he's also fully divine, and even Jesus got frustrated once in a while. So you got to imagine that Paul, just fully human without any of the divine stuff going in, is just being pushed to the very brink. And if you can enter into the humanness of Paul and, 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 and see all that he has ex experienced and went through, you can begin to imagine some of the questions that roll through his mind. Because being human, the questions that are kind of similar for all of us when we hit this point in our lives. When we get to, when we're going through a situation that continues to try us over and over and over again, and we hit roadblock after roadblock after roadblock, and resistance after resistance after resistance, and relationship tension over and over and over again, we all start asking the same questions, don't we? Am I really good at this? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Is this worth it? Did I get it right? Like, I thought I heard God calling me to this. But maybe it's not me. Maybe, there, maybe there's somebody out there who's better suited for this than, than I am. Maybe I just give up. I mean, all of these questions would make sense, right? And if we, any of us were able to counsel Paul and he came to us with these questions, we would go like, I, I understand why you're asking that. And it's there in that place, after shaking his clothes off and saying, I'm done with you. It's there that God speaks to Paul. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. Now, I am sure that between the Damascus Road experience and that hearing God speak to him in Corinth, I am sure that God, uh, Paul heard from God in that time, right? But, but this is the only word that Luke includes, so it makes me wonder that maybe this was, this is, one of those times in which it was clear. Where it was beyond a shadow of a doubt that Paul said, yes, this was the voice of Jesus speaking into my life. I have a friend 
who says that all of us as human beings, all of us as human beings have four to five pivotal experiences in our life that define our identity and our vocation and our presence in the world. Uh, There's no scientific basis on this, just his years of experience in coaching and dealing and working with people. It says four or five in a lifetime. That's what we get. And as I thought about what was happening here in the text and what was happening in Paul's life, and I thought about the words of my friends, I couldn't help but wonder if maybe this was, this was one of those times for Paul. And then it made me just think about my own experiences. And I began to just think about how many times those four or five pivotal moments, how often they come out of situations where there is suffering and there's confusion. I mean, sure, there are some moments in our life that are pivotal, identity force, you know, forming, set us in a different direction, that are, that are good and happy, right? That marriage and having kids is one of those. But, but marriage and kids, they, they shape our identity, but I don't know how much they necessarily shape our vocation or how our presence in the world, how we show up and what we believe we're here to do. Like, I, they do, but when I think about like the direction of my life, and how I, particularly like how I ended up right here. Marriage and kids is good and right, and I'm going to celebrate that all the live long day, but that's not why I ended up here. Maybe that's true for you too, like marriage and kids and some of these really positive experiences are wonderful, but you are where you are and you are who you are because of situations that were less than pleasant. These things, those moments, have really formed what you see in the world, what you think about it, and how you show up. For me, my understanding of my call to ministry rises up out of, out of pain, out of confusion, out of difficulty. My desire to live with authenticity and vulnerability comes from a particular moment in which I felt lonely and tired and, and unknown. And it took that experience for me to be able to live with a certain level of authenticity and believe that I would still be accepted. Like these are the kind of moments, these moments that maybe we say, I would rather not have experienced that at all, but I wouldn't be who I, was, who I am without that. These are the types of moments that shape us, and, and there are four or five of those moments in our life. And, and it's not to say that the other moments don't, but the other moments are lived because of those four or five moments. And, and I, don't know, I don't know if that's what Paul has here. This moment of frustration, this moment of exasperation, if suddenly that made him ripe to hear this particular word from God, but, but, it, but it makes sense for me, especially with what's going to happen coming after, because Paul's going to face even more difficulties as he's dragged all over the Roman Empire to sit before authorities and to be tried and to have to tell his story over and over and over again. 
And I just wonder if this isn't that pivotal moment that God says, now, now you are ready. Now I will speak this word of encouragement so that your direction in life, your identity, and your vocation will be solidified. What's also interesting is when I think about those four or five pivotal moments in our life, oftentimes I think that's when God does speak and direct and, and shape and move us. But, but so often what we get is not just the word from God or just not like that sense of God's presence or direction or whatever it might be for you. We also tend to get something else. With those moments, we often get a word from someone. Whether it's a conversation, whether it's some interaction of some kind that, that helps us clarify what the next season of life is going to look like or is going to affirm what we heard from God. And Paul gets that here as well while he's in Corinth. Yes, he gets the word from God. But he also gets something else, I think, that encourages him and affirms that he is doing what he's supposed to be doing. Now, that thing that Paul gets is not in Acts chapter 18. It's not there. You have to remember that the Bible is a collection of books, but those books are intimately connected with one another. They're not isolated. They're, they're woven and they are uh, uh, part of a, a big picture of the story of God. So think about the books of the Old Testament. You got the, like the historical books, you, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. You read those and then read them in connection with some of the prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and you begin to see this is what was happening within the life of Israel. Here's what God was saying to them. Or, or you've got the Psalms of exile, right? You can read about, uh, uh, or Daniel, right? So you've got the book of Daniel, and uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get exiled into uh, Babylon with all of the rest of Israel, right? That lines up with certain Psalms, like Psalm 137, and it also lines up with books like Jeremiah. All of these books line up together so we can see both the history, this is what Israel was going through, we see the prophets, this is what God was saying to Israel during this time, and then we see the poetry of the people, this is what they were feeling during this time. And it rounds out the whole picture and the story of God, gives it three dimension. The same thing happens in the New Testament. We've got Acts, which tells us the story of Paul's missionary journeys, but then we've also got his letters. Tell us about the relationship that Paul had with these churches. Tells us about the struggles that the church was having and how Paul directed them. Gave them some of the practical things. This is how, this is, well, let's start. It gave them the theology. This is what we believe. And then lined up and he said, because this is what we believe, this then is how we live and how we interact with one another and how the church operates. Again, just fleshes it all out. Gives it this three-dimensional texture. So, knowing that, Paul is in Corinth. And in chapter 18, Luke tells us that while Paul is in Corinth, Timothy and Silas come to him from Macedonia. We also know from historical evidence and all the work that scholars do, that while Paul was in Corinth, he wrote the letter to the Thessalonians, the, the first one. First Thessalonians was written during this time when Paul was in Corinth. So what happened? Paul is in Corinth. And as he's there, 
Timothy and Silas come from Macedonia, which is where Thessalonica is, and they bring with them word of how the Thessalonians are doing. Paul hears this, and then he writes the letter back to the church. So if you've got your Bibles, go to 1 Thessalonians. We're just going to look at a couple of parts of this book just to begin to see how Paul responds to the Thessalonians. So we'll start at chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Jump over to chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of, the, of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets who also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. But, brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly, I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. You can hear the affection in Paul's writings that he has for the Thessalonians. You are our glory and joy. And so when you consider all of the frustrations and the sufferings and the disappointments and the exasperation that Paul must have felt as he ran from intense situation after intense situation, you have to just... I mean, can you not imagine how encouraging it would have been for him to hear that the Thessalonians are holding on to the faith? They experienced the same persecution that he had. Remember, he was run out of Thessalonica by a mob. And then that mob went to Berea and chased him out of there. There was no guarantee that this church was going to succeed. There was no guarantee that the people were going to hold on to their faith. I mean, because... Because if you think about the message of Jesus, it is so countercultural, so different than anything else they would have been taught, so different than the ways of the world. Because what Paul came in and preaching was not just that Jesus is the Messiah or that he's the Christ or the King. Look at what Paul said in his message to the, to the first Corinthians. So now this is written years after Paul has left the first, uh, Corinth, but look what he says to, to the Corinthians. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Paul comes into these cities and he begins to preach, not just, he preaches Jesus is the Messiah, yes and amen. But he doesn't say Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen one of God who comes into the world riding on a white stallion, uh, banishing a sword and will defeat his enemies by killing them with a show of strength and violence. Instead, he comes in and says, the message of God is that Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen one, the savior of the world, who is defeating the power of evil and injustice and death by being crucified on a cursed tree. The way that God is displaying his power to the universe is by suffering the shame of one of the most humiliating and painful deaths that we can imagine. And it may seem like foolishness and weakness, not just to the Jews and the Gentiles, but to us as well, right? I mean, think about what it means to imitate Christ and to live in the way of Jesus. Love your enemies. Lay down your life for those who would mock and curse you. Willingly give up your position so that another may flourish. Put away your sword. Forgive as you have forgiven, which means forgive even when it is not deserved. When we preach Christ crucified, it sounds like foolishness, but it is, in fact, the wisdom of God. Christ on the cross is the wisdom and the power of God made manifest. I mean, just think about that. For all of the signs and the wonders that Jesus did, walking on water, feeding the 5,000, calming the storm, healing the blind men, touching lepers and healing them, casting out demons into pigs, raising people from the dead. For all of that, what revealed the power and the wisdom of God with clarity and with precision is the cross. Yes, all of the miracles, good and right. And they all pointed to God and revealed something about the truth of God. But the most accurate depiction of the love of God for us and for the world is witnessed in the suffering of Jesus. For three years, Jesus pointed his disciples in this direction. Three years, he taught them, encouraged them, showed them this way. Told them that he would eventually leave them and send them a helper in the Holy Spirit taught them about the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, told them to turn the other cheek, to pray for those who persecute them, to remember the meat that the meek inherit the earth, that his disciples must in fact become like little children, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. I mean, Jesus prepared them, taught them, pointed them this, this direction, and then, according to the wisdom of God, which, let's be honest, seems like foolishness to the rest of us, entrusted us to carry out living the kingdom ethic that he taught us to follow the spirit and to move into new cultures and a new context and to face new challenges. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. 
And yet, for all of what we determine as foolishness, it is the wisdom and the power of God. And so we can expect that it would be difficult, that there's going to be two steps forward and one step, and maybe sometimes even three steps backwards. It's not going to work. And it doesn't mean you're always going to feel encouraged. I'm sure you're really glad you're here when I say that. I mean, look at Paul. Paul lives into the kingdom ethic as well as anyone. He teaches others. He lives it out. He travels around setting up all these churches, writes long treatises on what it means to follow Jesus. And then he wonders if it's working and gets frustrated tears his clothes and says, I'm done with you. And then he hears from God. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep speaking. Do not be silent. I'm with you. And then he hears from the Thessalonians. It's happening. People are not only believing, but they're holding to it. They're becoming imitators of Christ. They're turning from their idols. They're turning from their ways that lead to death, and they're turning towards life in Jesus. People are living into the kingdom here and now. It's happening. And so this, and the word from the Lord, give Paul all the encouragement that he needs to keep going. So let's acknowledge maybe something similar for our own lives. Let's just start with being completely honest. Following Jesus is really hard and often confusing and doesn't necessarily simplify our lives. It won't necessarily make us more comfortable. The path forward isn't going to be clear and unambiguous at times. And we might, even, we might even feel some frustration and exasperation. In fact, we, 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 if we're being really honest, there might be times in which we wonder, is this worth it? And, and, and I'll just acknowledge, like, at this particular point in history and, and where we are, there are a lot of people who are wondering that as it pertains to church. Maybe they say, yes, Jesus is worth it, but the church, I don't, uh, is, I don't know if the church is worth it. Is this really what Jesus had in mind? Is it worth really getting my kids up and ready and piling them into the car and dealing with the frustrations and then rushing home to get lunch and naps and all of the stuff that goes along with that? Is church worth it with the squabbles and the tension and the hypocrisy? Can I, can I be really honest with you? Okay, no one's stopping me and I've got the face mic. So, I've felt it. If I'm being honest, I've felt it. Is it really worth it? Am I just banging my head against the wall? 
And I don't see that to guilt or shame anybody. I think this, again, I just think it's natural. I think it's human. I think it's, it's, it's what happens when we swim against the stream, when we try to follow Jesus in a world that's saying, no, go this way, do this thing. When there's all these other things that are vying for our time and our attention and our energy, I think it's very natural for us to go, wait, wait, is this really worth it? And what I've found is usually when I'm in that space of asking that question, something comes up. Either it's hearing from God, and, and I don't claim to hear from Paul like that, but like reading a verse or coming across a prayer or something and that, that rises up in my spirit that says, keep going. Or, or I begin to hear about things that are happening. I hear about ways in which people in the church are helping one another or the ways in which they're serving in the community that, 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 that we didn't orchestrate. We didn't do some drive or some initiative. Like people just followed God, followed the promptings of the Holy Spirit to get involved in this thing and are now serving and doing wonderful things. And when I hear about that, it encourages me. It's like getting a word back from Thessalonica and being like people are turning from idols and turning towards life. Yes, it matters. Or I see how you all care for one another during difficult times in each other's lives. And we in the office don't orchestrate anything. You just start caring for one another and showing up with meals and, and visiting and writing cards and doing those things. And I get like the privileged position of getting to hear what other people don't. It's like, oh, it's happening. Families that meet together on a regular basis to just share a meal and encourage one another. The impact that we hear that our church is having in the community. And I get reminded, yes, yes, this, this is good. It is hard and it is difficult and it is not always comfortable, but it is good and it is right. And God is with us. Maybe, maybe you're in that place today where it seems like following Jesus is really, oh man. Like, it just raises the question, is this worth it? Maybe it's super frustrating. Maybe, maybe something discouraging is happening, and, and you just go, like, am I good enough at this? Am I doing it the right way? And, and what I want to do this morning is I just want to say, it's okay. It's okay just to acknowledge that that happens in our faith life. And we don't need to run from it. We don't need to hide from it. We don't need to pretend that it's not there, but we can be really honest about it. I have a friend who's a spiritual direction, director. I don't go to her for spiritual direction. Um, but oftentimes in our conversations, as maybe I'm venting some frustrations or just talking about what I'm feeling and all of this sort of stuff, she'll put on her spiritual director hat and, and, and just ask a question that always just stops me. And simply this question. What is God's invitation for you in this? In those moments of frustration and difficulty and tension and uncertainty, feeling like a failure, rather than ignoring it, rather than brushing it away, rather than pretending it's not there, maybe, maybe better to just face it head on and ask the question, what is God's invitation for me in this? Maybe this is one of those pivotal moments, one of those four or five moments that 
will shape my identity and my vocation and my direction in the world. Maybe it's not that, but in this, I'm going to get a, I'm going to get a better sense of who I am. Or maybe, maybe I'll come away with a more clear picture of who God is, a more robust understanding of God's love and grace and mercy and withness. Maybe God's invitation is to to look at things that you would otherwise look away from or discount. And God's invitation is to look at them so that you might be encouraged by them. And then as you look at them, as you hear about the goodness of God and where it's showing up in other places of the world, you are given what you need to hold on to faith and it sustains you for the next season. I don't know. But I'm coming to believe that the God we serve is the God of invitation. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. This is what we say, right? Jesus invites us to come to the table. The Spirit says, come all who are thirsty, all who are tired, and you'll find rest. Our God is a God of invitation. Paul was frustrated and the invitation was, keep going. Remember, I'm with you. What's God's invitation for you where you are right now? Let's pray. God, we give you thanks that you give us what we need. You taught us to pray for our daily bread. You taught us to pray for just what we need to make it through. And that daily bread can come in the form of actual food, but maybe our daily bread is a word of encouragement, the prompting of the spirits, the comfort of feeling your presence surround us. I pray whatever it is for these people that you would give us our daily bread that we might be sustained that we might be sustained for the next season of following you in the world may we not give up may we be encouraged may we experience grace and mercy and comfort and joy as we follow Christ even when it seems foolish even when it's difficult and may we see the wisdom and the power of you in our lives we pray this in Christ's name Amen